In the rugged and remote Taranaki region of New Zealand runs a Waimeti stream and the isolated Manuka forests, home to the bees that produce some of the most natural, pure Manuka honey in the world. Manuka honey is a great daily immune booster, digestive remedy and an anti-inflammatory. It's also a great alternative to sugar and a powerful ingredient for longevity. Waimeti honey is a high quality New Zealand Manuka honey now available in Australia at Woolworths right around the country. And even better, every time you buy Waimeti honey, 10% of your purchase goes towards the regeneration of hive numbers to increase the world bee population. More honey, more healing, and more health for humanity. Waimeti honey, find it now in Woolworths stores right around Australia. MP, it's here, this weekend. That's right, Fredo. The Wellness Base Camp lands two hours south of Sydney in Kiama this Saturday, June the 2nd. Oh, naturopath, gut health and female health extraordinaire Helen Patteron will be joining us. Fuad Kassab from Quirky Cooking is coming down. Fellow podcaster Dr. Maria Zussman will be talking all about stress. And you and I, Bretto, will be there talking about love and relationships, work-life balance and how to truly master your wellness. Zazen Alkaline Water presents the Wellness Base Camp. One full day of inspiration and education on this Saturday, June 2, from 10 until 5. There's over 1,000 bucks in door prizes, a raft of world-class local exhibitors and a room full of people just like you. So bring a buddy and get two tickets for the price of one. All details and tickets available at thewellnessbasecamp.com. That's thewellnessbasecamp.com. Welcome to the Wellness Guys Show with wellness experts Dr. Damien Christoph and Dr. Brett Hill. Hey, Brett. Hey, Damo. What are you working on at the moment, mate? Well, I'm working on a few things, Damo. I'm writing a book, but what I've just finished working on is my Art of Natural Running e-course, oh. and I'm really excited about it. So, you know, I've been going around Australia doing this uh, this live course where I was teaching people how to run naturally, and uh, and what I realized was that I couldn't get around to everybody uh, and that it was hard to get around to everybody all around Australia and even outside of Australia, people who wanted to learn about how to run naturally and how to run it more easily, how to make it more fun and how to get less injuries. And so I decided to put it all together into an e-course, which is about five and a half hours worth of video content. Oh, far out. That's unbelievable. Where do people find it? So they can find it at theartofnaturalrunning.com and they'll be able to hear not just from me, but from experts like Danny Dreyer from Chi Running, we've got Kim Morrison, we've got Kelly Starrett from Mobility Ward, and we've even got a guy called The Barefoot Podiatrist, who's my favorite, good bloke. So, theartofnaturalrunning.com. You may know this person, her name is Christine Bryden. Um, There was an Australian story done on her about two years ago. In in her career, she was actually an advisor to the Prime Minister in Science and Technology. Senior advisor. Senior advisor. She was a very, very clever lady. She was diagnosed in her late 40s. Um, and she was told that within three years she would be in care. Within five years, she would no longer, she would be deceased. She is still alive 20 years later. She, last year, she completed her PhD in theology. Hi, this is Damien Christoph. And this is Brett Hill. How are you, Brett? 
I'm good, mate. I'm good. I really enjoyed this interview today. I just thought it was such a inspirational message from a really inspirational couple who uh, are talking about what can be sometimes a bit of a challenging conversation around dementia um, and diagnoses of dementia. Uh, but they're really just showing that you know it doesn't have to be the be all and end all. You can really live and thrive and have an amazing influence throughout that, which is just incredible. Yeah, it is great. There's a lot of people actually, approximately 425,000 Australians live with dementia, which is pretty full on. Um, And they reckon that this figure is going to increase by, you know, double uh, by 2050. So it's going to get to about a million people by the uh, year 2050, which isn't very far away, Brad, if you and I, if you and I, like this, you know, we'll be there. We will still be alive and we'll be. hopefully we don't have dementia. But it's an interesting thing because a lot of people are being diagnosed with dementia. And what's interesting about it, and Glynis and John talk about this in the podcast, um, actually they might have spoken about it off air, but they mentioned that there's so many different signs and symptoms of dementia. It's now not just memory loss and it's now not just the standard typical things that you might associate with dementia. There's everything from being able to you know, see potatoes on a plate or not recognizing that because the light is red at the traffic lights, that that means stop. You you get it, but you can't, you know, transmit that sort of content to your feet. So it's really uh, quite a fascinating area of study and, uh, and, and, and research. Yeah, and the study aspect is incredible. You know, they're fascinating that that John has not only you know dealt with the diagnosis, he's not only figured out how to thrive in his life, but he's now gone on to study this area um, in order to be able to help other people um, live and, as he says, live well and thrive through dementia. I, I just think it's a phenomenal work that he's doing. Yeah, me too. I'm with you, buddy. So uh, let's get stuck into the interview and um, and have a good time with it. Mate, uh, we're joined uh, by a really fascinating man, uh, John Quinn, and his wife, Glenis, she's sitting next to him, and uh, and we're talking today about dementia. It's a uh, an interesting, um, and, you know, it, it seems to be more and more common an issue, doesn't it, Preto? It seems to be, you know, a lot of people seem to be getting it these days, and we need to understand it, and we need stories from people that are doing well with it. So um, we've been approached, and we thought we'd have a, a nice chat with John. So, John... Um, Welcome to the Wellness Guys show. We're very interested to be speaking with you today. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for inviting me, Damien and Brett. John, um, it is really great to have you on here. Now, your history is interesting because you're a, a, a teacher. You're, um, you know, you've obviously being a, a principal of a school and having a strong um, history of, you know, a strong brain, a strong brain, a very smart man. To then find yourself uh, challenged with the condition such as dementia, that must have been, um, you know, a challenging time and 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 difficult to kind of you know reconcile. How are you going with your diagnosis of um, of dementia? Um, Damien and Brett, um, I I've had to adapt and change my, my lifestyle to be able to live well with dementia. I did go. I did go through a period of time after my diagnosis where, um, first of all, it was a relief to get my diagnosis because there are certain things that are hap- were happening uh, to my driving and also my um, processing of information that started to impact upon not only my my job but also daily living. When I got a diagnosis, it was a sense of of relief. It actually confirmed what I knew, that there was something wrong. And the reason why I, I, I had an inkling there was something wrong because um, I've got 
uh, Alzheimer's disease of the familial type, and it's a genetic form of d- dementia. It's very rare. It's uh, the statistics say that between three and five percent of people who are diagnosed have the familial type. So yeah, right. it's in the family. I had a mother, two aunts, and an uncle who were all diagnosed in the late fifties and early sixties. So mm-hmm. initially, my reaction to my diagnosis was one of relief, and then the relief turned around to one of despair. I felt despair because um, I could no longer work and I could no longer um, provide for my family. And what was uppermost in my mind is I had still had visions of my mother in her later stages of, of, the, of the condition, you know, and she used to wander around a local, local shopping centre in her nighty. So I really was concerned about what other people would think about me when they knew that I had a dementia diagnosis. So... After my diagnosis, yes, I was in a deep, deep dark hole, and I and I was there for many, many years until. And the only thing that I used to do, I suppose, uh, I'm right into exercise, so uh, I had a routine that I'd get up and I'd go running with friends of mine, and then I'd come home. But when I came home, I would just sit in the corner, look at the wall, and and not engage in life. And that happened for about two years before and four years after my diagnosis. So. It was a very, very, very uh, frightening. It's it's a it's a period of my time that I want to re- don't want to revisit. However, there was a turning point in in uh, my diagnosis. Um, uh, I met a very significant Australian by the name of Ida Buttress. I attended a fundraising event that was held by Dementia Australia Queensland in 2014, I think, from memory. Yep. And I met Ida, and Ida had a, a conversation with me. And it was the very encouraging and positive language that Ida had with me. She took me aside and she spoke to me as a person. She found out what I was like. And that turned my diagnosis around. And in fact, I came home that night and for several days afterwards, I kept on saying to Glennis, I can do this. I can live well with dementia. And that was the turning point in my attitude towards my dementia. Now, that was also the catalyst for me to start researching about what I could do to incorporate into my life to live well with dementia. And being a, a school teacher, a school principal, and in education all my life, I developed what's called an acronym. And the acronym is NAMES, N-A-M-E-S. And each one of those letters stands for a, a thing that I think about every day when trying to live well with dementia. N is for NAMES. N is, for, N is for nutrition, and I've added hydration to that because I believe that you need to um, hydrate on a regular basis, two to three litres a day. Uh, a is for attitude and acceptance. Now, I've, did, I've adopted a, a positive attitude towards my diagnosis and, and my acceptance. I, I mean, there was no sense of me sitting around moping, and, and what I needed to do was get up get up off my chair and start to engage in life again. So my whole attitude's changed. Um, I've accepted the fact that I've got, got di- uh, dementia, and, and dementia is no different to any other medical condition. Once you accept that, you can move on. So I've, I've moved on. My M is for mental activities. I try to engage my brain on a daily basis. I do the crossword puzzle with my non-dominant hand. Um, I write. I, I write letters to the local newspaper, the Curie Mail, and, and quite often get my letters um, printed. Um, I learned Spanish uh, as a second language. I've been doing that for several years. Um, and I read 
as much as I possibly can, although I find my reading is starting to uh, become rather problematic. Um, I do meditation. I try to do mindfulness meditation whenever I can. And music, there's a lot of research out there that says that music is good, good for your, uh, good for your uh, sense of well-being and, and so on and so forth. Um, that's my M. E is for exercise. I, I, I exercise uh, regularly. I, I cycle, I swim, uh, I run, I do Pilates, I walk. Um, and the other thing that goes with the E is enjoyment. Um, uh, I still enjoy doing certain things and I do those. I go to the movies and, 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 and so on and so forth. I like to uh, have cups of coffee with my friends and, and have jokes and all that. And S is for um, social engagement. Social engagement is very important for people with dementia. Support. Um, I couldn't do what I, 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 I do without the support from Glennis and other people. Um, Setting goals, even though I may have dementia and it's a terminal um, progressive disease, I still set myself some short and long, short, medium, and long term goals. Um, and finally, sleep. There's a lot of research out there about sleep. So, uh, John, I love this. You know, this fits in so well with so many of the things we talk about on the wellness guys. And I just love the way you're approaching you you know the fact that you're focused on living well with dementia i think is just amazing and an absolute credit to you that you're taking such an active role in doing all those things and i also found it fascinating that you described your diagnosis as a relief because i think you know those two things in combination i think are really important for people to understand because i think for people uh, who think they may be suffering from dementia or or maybe you know on a di- diagnosed with dementia that they can avoid that diagnosis. You know, often people are reluctant to want to go and get a test and to find out whether they might have uh, this condition uh, because they're scared about what that might mean. But, um, you know, what would you say to those people who are, uh, I guess, maybe thinking, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't go and get checked um, about how they, you know, how important it is to go and get checked and and I guess the ability then to thrive through that as, as, a, as opposed to suffering as a result of getting that diagnosis? I think it's very important if, if they're concerned about, and the other thing is too about um, dementia. Or, well, um, it's not only about memory. It, it's there are other things associated with having dementia. It could be your, your thinking skills, your processing of language. It can be your behaviour, and it and and there's a lot of uh, research out there at the moment that that people living with dementia can have what we call uh, multi-sensory challenges. Uh, I've been diagnosed recently having multi-sensory challenges. I'll give you an example. Uh, recently, or recently, I, I couldn't see a set of traffic lights. Now, there's nothing wrong with my eyesight, but my brain was not computing that there was a there were traffic lights. So, right. um, for, for your listeners out there, remember, dementia is not only about memory. Now, getting back to the question you asked me, yes, I think it's very important. If they've got concerns, go along to your GP, and if your GP is concerned, they will refer you to a specialist. You you might be referred to what's called a memory clinic, and that memory clinic will do a series of tests to work out whether or not you are uh, exhibiting signs of, of, of dementia. The reason why it's important for them to get a diagnosis as soon as the diagnosis is made, they can then get support. So there is support available now, but when I got diagnosed eight years ago, 
there was little support available. That's why I needed. That's why I personally needed to do some research about what I could do to live well with dementia. But um, uh, organisations like Dementia Australia and other organisations that are involved in providing programs for people with dementia are now becoming more proactive in the way they support people when they get a diagnosis. John, it's um, it's not that straightforward though, is it? Because you, off the call before, you mentioned to us that it was uh, quite difficult for you to get a diagnosis. And for many people, particularly if, if dementia ends up being, you know, rapidly progressive, um, taking a long time to be diagnosed could be disastrous. And yours took a little bit of time to get diagnosed too, didn't it? It certainly did, yes. And, and, and there's another reason why, particularly for young people, because there's this stereotype out there that, um, people with dementia are elderly. However, people are being diagnosed much younger. We, we've, we've, we've had people in our support group that were in their late 30s and early 40s. Is that right? So, wow. Yes. Goodness. Yes. So is there a screening thing that people – sorry, Brad, I was going to follow on there. I didn't get a chance to type that to you, mate. <laughs> uh, is there a screening process <laughs> that people can do? Like, is it, is it easy? Like, if someone's kind of thinking, oh, my gosh, have, could I have dementia? Is there something that people can do? Is there a resource that people can use to maybe just see, that they, you know, before they go down the medical route and go visit their GP, or do they actually need to go and see their GP? They need to go and see the GP. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm, not in, I'm not into self diagnosis to be honest no so dr google's no good and professor wiki they don't cut it i know a lot of people use them but i particularly if someone thinks they've got dementia uh, dementia and i would suggest they go to a medical professional and so john what sort of i guess signs and symptoms should they look out for because you've mentioned that it's more than just memory so you know what sort of things are really hallmark signals that people could look out for that might make them say do you know what? I think getting along to the GP might be a good idea. Um, driving. Um, even even though um, driving um, is, is one of those things that we do automatically. We get in the car when we turn the engine on and, you know, we engage the gears and so on we go off. Um, over the years, it's become one of those things that we do automatically. But for me particularly... That that was one of the first things that Glennis noticed. Uh, my driving behaviours, you know, they 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 were frightening, to be honest. I mean, I'd come to an intersection and I really didn't know what decision to make. You know, who had right away and and so on and so forth. So, mm. so for some people, it could be driving issues. Now, the difficulty with that one is that if they don't have someone else in the car with them, no one's going to observe that, are they? No. Mm. No, that's exactly right. Uh, that's, yeah, that's a good point. Yes. And the other thing is, too, um, the, the neurological um, sensory challenges, I mean, um, and, and, they're, and they're specific to each person. Uh, I mean, I, I have problems with, with the seeing things. Uh, there are people with dementia who have trouble with their sense of smell, their sense of taste. Um, both of those um, senses have deteriorated since since I uh, was diagnosed with dementia. So, and, and also their behaviours, some behaviour they might be exhibiting may be right out of, right off the planet. Now, right at, um, uh, you know, they could be uh, completely dis disinhibited and doing certain things in public that you shouldn't do in public, you know? Sure. So the there's wrong, a whole... Wrong parts of the brain firing off and not being, you know, controlled. 
Yes. Yeah. Uh, hi, it's Sorry, hi, it's Glenis here, and I hi, just Glenis. wanted to add... Thanks for joining hi. us. Oh, thank you for having us here. I just wanted to add that it's not that simple, and that's why John is actually um, suggesting people go to the medical profession because there are many symptoms of dementia that can be caused by other diseases or um, conditions that people may wrongly self-diagnose, and then that has a huge impact psychologically as well. Um, when it, it could be that all they needed was um, that may have had, I don't know, but I was going to say it might be anemic and that's adding to, you know, confusion or something like that or, um, you know, not eating um, correctly. Levels, if they got, yeah. I was just going to say hypoglycemic mm. and those sorts of things can impair memory. So it's very important to go and check out fully. There's also neuropsychological um, tests quite complex and detailed and um, exhausting. Um, MRIs and lots of things like that that John also undertook as well. And, and I'd like to add with the driving issue, the diagnosis for dementia is not an automatic exclusion for being able to drive. A lot of people who, once they're diagnosed, are still able to. And that's why it's very important um, that they're in contact with their GP to start with, um, who and, and I suggest going to an occupational therapist to have a correct um, driving assessment, um, you, you must declare it to the Department of Transport because just like if you had ep epilepsy yeah. or, or diabetes and things like that, you must declare it to the Department of Transport because it may impact on your driving. Yeah. But it's, a diagnosis is just not an automatic exclusion of being able to drive. And many people, John, John drove for many years despite <laughs> my concerns. Mm -hmm. you know, and and the, the other thing is one of the earliest um, symptoms that I noticed when he was in his early, early 50s was his communication. Um, there was a weirdness about it and, and there was a sudden change. And, and I think that's the important thing. Um, not that it always is sudden, but for John it was where I noticed his behaviour was different, um, his personality was changing, um, his communication and, and in, on reflection, his neuropsych report indicated that he was in the top 5% in expressive language but the bottom 7% in processing and receptive um, language. So, you know, that was sort of interesting because I'd, I'd picked that up years beforehand and didn't know why. Yeah. And, and particularly... John, sorry, because John continued to work for another five years after his first contact with the GP, diagnosed with stress, ADHD, OCD, Asperger's syndrome, um, stress again, depression, and by this time, trust me, he was starting to become depressed, yeah. but none of the medication worked for him. And in the end, they gave him um, psychotic medication and, and it was like, stop, enough, <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, John, um You've you've actually gone on to do research um, into dementia, and uh, and we're fascinated by that. And we'd love to know what your research is and what you're finding, um, and and what's exciting you about your your journey through dementia at the moment. Because you know, obviously, learning about it and then teaching about it is um, is is totally something else, particularly when you've got it. Yes, you're correct. Um, what um, got me um, thinking about dementia and masculinity was that in 2016 I attended a uh, uh, international conference in Budapest and uh, I presented there on 
on a particular topic about dementia. And I happened to listen to a presentation by a researcher over there, researcher who was talking about the impact that a diagnosis of dementia had people who come from the LGBTQIT community. And I was really taken aback about how they were being treated in care. And then um, I had a conversation with a good friend of mine and she said to me, um, "What did, how did your diagnosis of dementia impact upon you as a male? And that really got me to start thinking about um, how I felt as a male when I got diagnosed with dementia. And the first thing I did was I did a, uh, a literature scan. And the interesting thing about that literature scan was that I found very few, if any, articles written about dementia and masculinity. Most of the articles that I read were about um, carers, male carers of someone with dementia, but not about a person living with dementia. So I thought, well, I'm going to do my own personal um, um, research. So I then uh, started speaking to, to males uh, locally in my support group and also whenever I attended a national conference. And then when I went overseas, I also spoke to, to other males who'd been diagnosed with dementia. And, and, and what I found was that a lot of the issues that they uh, raised with me in terms of the impact it had on, on them as a male were very, very similar. Things like, um, and the other thing that became quite significant or quite, quite apparent was that in some ways it's dependent on the year in which you were brought up. You know, I was brought up in the 50s. And in the 50s, as there is in any generation, there's certain sex role stereotyping. In other words, there are certain expectations of, of genders. Now, in, in my era, the male was supposed to be the breadwinner. Um, um, not many uh, females went on beyond what beyond year uh, year what we call in Queensland year ten or beyond the age of fifteen. I'm glad that's not the case um, now because I'd be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So, um, and and the and the reason for that was that women women uh, it was expected that women would. Um, uh, leave school, get a job as a secretary or work in the bank, um, become a stenographer or, or one of those jobs, or clerical job or go into hospitality. And after a number of years, they'd find find a bloke and get married and have children, whereas men were expected to be educated, to go on because they had to be educated so they, they could get a good job and provide for their family. So one of the one of the big issues I found when I interviewed males was that they lost their career, and as you know, um, a great deal of our identity, how we feel about ourselves, is associated with with uh, paid or unpaid work, um, our career, what we do in life. So that was a major that had a major impact on them. These, these guys had to leave work; they could no longer provide for their family. They felt like failures. They were ashamed. And, and John, I think, I think the great thing about this is that not only are you able to do this research, you know, that you're looking into and, and studying this, but I think that what you're doing is also being a, 
leading example, you know, a shining light for these people on how they can do it and how they can thrive through it. And so, you know, it, it seems to me the example you're setting here is by saying that, well, you know, the, the diagnosis doesn't have to stop me. You know, I, I can actually, you know, sure, I might change my career a little bit. I might go in a slightly different direction, but it doesn't mean that I'm not perfectly capable of having you know, a massive influence on the world around me and having a very positive influence on the world around me. You know, is that the kind of important message we need to get out to these guys is that just because you might need to change jobs doesn't mean that you can't have a very, very positive influence? Uh, that's correct. They're correct. There, there is what I call life beyond dementia. And with adaptations and and changing the way you do things and reinventing yourself sometimes, I mean, one of the things um, that I've been fortunate enough to do is that I've, I've been able to reclaim some of the, uh, what I call the purposeful activities that, that, that I like to do. Um, and a lot of them are cranial type things like I like doing, um, you know, a, a, a give me a research project and I'll go ahead and do it. Um, um, give me a good book and I'll read the book. Uh, um, take me along to the local um, um, uh, library or or uh, to the to the art museum or whatever like that. So the secret to unlocking my masculinity was to find out the sorts of things that I'm interested in doing. And basically, what it is is you have to find you have to sit down and talk to the person, the male who has been diagnosed with dementia and find out about their life's history, what they used to do before diagnosis, and then try and cater for those particular things when you're putting in place programs which are engaging, meaningful, and what I call purposeful for them. Damien, you touched before on something you laughed about, um, the women of today found out through his research because he didn't just only interview the males. He actually interviewed everyone in our support group, um, which is a mix of males and females, and our local, national and international friends that we've formed, friendships we've formed. Yes. And there was a mix of ages from the ages of um, the late 30s, early 40s, and what he discovered was um, an interesting factor that the younger women of today that he interviewed had a different attitude to the older women that were born in the same era as John. Um, yeah, I can because, imagine, yeah. Because women of today know that they can do anything they want and that was not encouraged back in the 50s. And, and it's also the, the family context. John, would you like to talk about the, your, your own personal family context that sort of guided you a little bit? Yeah, yeah that would be cool. Um, um, I... I as I mentioned before, I was brought up in the 50s. Uh, my father left when I was four years old. Uh, I had to go into um, into care. Um, when my mother uh, was well enough um, to um, uh, take us out of care, uh, back to the home that we had, um, and was able to look after us, now there were six children, um, I was the third eldest. I was, but I was the I was the oldest male in the family, and because there was no father, I took on tasks that would ordinarily be assigned to the father and not to the not to the daughter, not to the not to the not, not to the girls. 
Now, nowadays, um, there's no differentiation of, of, of tasks, which is, I think, a forward step. But in my day, males were expected to do certain things, like, for example, I was expected to mow the lawn. I was expected to take out the rubbish. I was expected, if I could, fix things around the house. Yeah. And that's another thing that, that, that often happens when, when you're a male and you get a diagnosis of dementia. You might have been a handyman all, all your life and all of a sudden those particular skills are lost. You can't, you can no longer. And one of the guys that I interviewed was, was that. He was a handyman and he, and he, and he made his living from, from going to people's houses and fixing things. Yeah, right. So when he, got his, when he got his diagnosis of dementia, he could no longer do that. And what even compounded the impact it had on him as a male was that he would sit at home and he would actually watch other tradesmen come into his house to fix things. And what was even a more watch with and what was even a, a greater insult to his personhood was the fact he had to pay them for it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that would be that would be a disaster. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, I couldn't I couldn't imagine that at all. Now, there is a conference coming up, the International Dimension Conference, and uh, John, you're going to be speaking at that, which is uh, which is great, and you'll be presenting your research. And there's apparently about a thousand delegates going to be at this particular event. Um, it's coming up in uh, June on June eight, and uh, I, I think you're speaking on June eight. I think aren't you? I think it, it runs from June seven to eight, so it's two days. But uh, that's a, a very exciting opportunity, and um, and we wish you all the best for that because it sounds like your message is what people need to hear, and that it, the effects of it on your lifestyle and on your well-being are profound. But it sounds like you guys are nailing it. So congratulations, uh, John and Glennis, for what you guys are achieving. It's really fantastic. And Damien, Brett, the other the other uh, message I want to get across to the service board providers and also those organisations that work in the area of dementia is that um, you have to think about the programs that you provide for people with dementia. Often um, people with dementia don't become eligible for what I call a, a package until a lot of their functionalities have been lost. There should be... It's too late. It should be earlier. Support. Yeah, there should be support offered to people with dementia on diagnosis, just like there's support offered to people who have a stroke or, or are in a major... Or whatever else. Or diabetes. Yeah. Any of those. It's great... And, and Brett, I love... John has a little saying that I just absolutely love, and it's so positive, and he says, um, a diagnosis of dementia is not a lifestyle choice. Lifestyle. Lifestyle choice. But now that I have dementia, I can choose my lifestyle, and I choose to live well with dementia. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I'm loving that. Well what a great well way done. to what a great way to finish a great podcast. Just love to thank you guys again, John and Glennis, for joining us on the Wellness Guys. I know that our listeners will have got a lot from this, and um, and I'm, I'm sure that those people that are concerned about dementia or, or know of people and living with uh, dementia um, will be fascinated by your story and would love to come and listen to you at the uh, International Dementia Conference coming up in June. So thanks again, guys. Thanks for joining us. Thank, thank you. you. 
Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this week's episode of The Wellness Guy Show. We hope you love the new feel. Remember to continue to interact with us and tell us what you thought of this and other episodes. Please head to facebook.com forward slash The Wellness Guys and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. This is the way that we get to share our message with the world. For more information about Bredo and all that he's up to, please head to drbredhill.com.au. And to find out more about me, head to damienchristoff.com. Until we meet again, continue to bring wellness into your life and we'll join you next time on The Wellness Guy Show. This year, The Wellness Summit returns. What is the ramifications for you if you continue to not know where your food is coming from and not make a hard stand about what you're consuming? Back in 1992, I didn't know how to cook. In fact, I ate really poorly as many of you know. But I now love it so much that when I go to prepare something, it becomes magical. Don't want you to be stuck in the, the crap that's happening. Know it, yes. Be aware of it, yes. But bring your vibration up so that we can vibrate at a higher level and collectively, we might be able to bring everybody up to make those changes. I love preparing it. I know that everyone who's eating it absolutely loves it. Even the bits that they don't want to eat, they love eating them because I love making them. Does that make sense? Cindy O'Meara and Damien Christoph feature at the 2018 Wellness Summit. Bigger and better than ever. Tickets on sale Friday, May 4 at thewellnesssummit.com. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.